is the fall line. Well, we have a long history in Atlanta. Um, our first known descendant in the city of Atlanta was a man by the name of Ransom Montgomery. Ransom Montgomery was uh, responsible for the uh, Montgomery Ferry, which uh, is tied to the Montgomery Ferry Road uh, in Buckhead. Uh, in any case, uh, this was pre-Civil War. Um, he was freed because he saved a train. So the story is that uh, Ransom uh, was out uh, on, a, on a given day uh, preparing to uh, initiate uh, crossing the Chattahoochee River uh, using the ferry. And there's a train uh, bridge that's next to that spot. And in fact, that bridge is still there, but at the time it was wooden instead of metal. And cinders from the smokestack set the bridge ablaze and before any of the passengers showed up, Ransom uh, went up and he proceeded to put the flames out. And the passengers arrived uh, noticing that he put the uh, flames out. And for that reason, uh, the state of Georgia actually bought him from his, uh, quote, owners and uh, gave him freedom uh, of traveling anywhere he wanted to and uh, allowed him uh, to sell bonds in the uh, Atlantic and Western uh, Railroad Station. How much do things change in a century in the South? November 1987, Atlanta. A little under nine years until the 1996 Olympics just under three years before the announcement came that our city would host the Games. It was then, 1990, that the look of Atlanta began to shift. In season three of The Fall Line, we talked about the effect all the Olympic preparation had on Atlanta's public housing, of the many neighborhoods that were dismantled and demolished to make the skyline more attractive or more prosperous looking. Many of the neighborhoods associated with the Atlanta child murders were the first to be rezoned, with residents scattered, sometimes further out of the city and onto the edges of county lines. The story of Gregory Montgomery, murdered the day after Thanksgiving, 1987, begins and ends with one of these neighborhoods. There is a single archival news article on this crime published in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It is brief. We're told that a 24-year-old man was shot and killed at the Thomasville Heights apartment complex. That he'd gone there to Henry Thomas Drive to complete a drug deal. That he had been accompanied by a friend, one who sped off in their car with an injured Gregory after the shooting. That a named suspect was, according to the AJC Metro report, being sought, quote, on a murder charge. The only other published mention of Gregory Montgomery is in his obituary. His niece, Carla, reached out to us about Gregory's case. She wanted someone to revive the story of the uncle who was shot when she was still a child. Carla is a lawyer and is the podcast listener in her family. Carla's father, James Montgomery, Gregory's brother, he prefers public radio. Carla had recently been looking into her uncle's case herself. 
we asked her to describe what led her to actively research Gregory's death and why she contacted the fall line. And just a note, you might hear a baby in the background of our interview tape with the family. That's one of the perils of making a podcast while parenting small children. What made you want to get the story in front of an audience? Well, I've seen over the years, you know, how, first of all, it's, it's helped reignite law enforcement interest in cases, um, but also, you know, kind of to humanize certain, well, humanize my uncle. I can't say just certain people, humanize my uncle. Because a lot of times people hear things in the news or see stories in the news, oh, drug deal gone bad, this person was shot and killed, it's out of the news cycle, like immediately, if it even makes it in. And it kind of, I guess, just to piggyback off of what my dad said, oh, somebody involved in drugs, another black person dead, whatever type of thing. I mean, you told us when we met you for the first time, and it was really impactful for Mm -hmm. us, when you told us that you were afraid that we wouldn't want to cover the case. Right. Um, I feel particularly with crime victims that are Black, if the person is not a perfect victim, a child, or some adult with like a clean record and no involvement with law enforcement, a a married person, or, you know, somebody that's seen as a pillar of their community. If they're not this perfect victim, then people kind of just are uninterested. If you listen to True Crime Podcast in search of, as Carla says, perfect victims, then maybe you think Gregory Montgomery's story is not for you. He was killed in the midst of a drug deal gone bad in a high crime area. He had a criminal record. He was not a young man who would have been memorialized on the nightly news. But maybe that's exactly why you should listen. Because Gregory Montgomery was a son of Atlanta, a father and brother whose history in our city stretched back to that ferry run by Ransom Montgomery. He's part of our present, too. An open case, an unsolved crime with a clear suspect, an empty seat at every Montgomery family gathering. Close to 200 years after Ransom was called a hero, his descendants wait in the same Atlanta, wondering when the answers might come. Carla's father, James Montgomery, is the eldest of all of his siblings. He spent his career working for IBM as a software architect. Now retired, his interests run to research and reading and genealogy. You heard James telling Ransom's story at the top of the episode. Over the past few years, he has picked the threads of the Montgomery family loose from incomplete records and formed them into a tree reaching all through Atlanta and beyond. In our city... Montgomery's Ferry is not forgotten. A street in the wealthy Atlanta neighborhood, Morningside, still bears their family name. It's maybe seven miles from Thomasville Heights, where Gregory Montgomery died. These two Atlantas share no resemblance. Thomasville Heights is in the metro, only a few minutes' drive from the in-town neighborhood of Kirkwood in the metro county of DeKalb. That's where James and Gregory's mother lived in 1987. 
In 2019, Kirkwood is a gentrified Southeast Atlanta area full of half-million-dollar craftsman homes. Most of the original residents have been priced out, their houses torn down and reshaped. Atlanta likes rebuilding. To understand what happened to Gregory Montgomery, why his case has been open for decades, don't start in Atlanta 1987. Reach back further. Maybe you start with Ransom, as Mr. Montgomery did the first time we met him. Maybe you start during the Montgomery siblings' childhood, the in-town neighborhoods where they grew up. Either way, the stories are of and about Atlanta. In terms of my, my time in Atlanta growing up, uh, we first lived on uh, Magruder Street, which is in old Fourth Ward. Uh, from there, my father owned the business uh, in on Auburn Avenue. So as a result of that, uh, we came in contact with a lot of the people, uh, uh, such as M.L. King, uh, Daddy King, as they call them, some of the other businessmen. And I knew some of the children of some of the business owners on Auburn Avenue. What type of business did your dad own? He'd owned the dry cleaning business right there. So you can imagine quite a few people came in to bring their clothing yes. and that sort of thing. So, uh, uh, you know, at the time I did not realize who people were, uh, you know, in terms of their importance as far as history is concerned. I was just, uh, they were just people that, that we knew. Uh, from there, we moved to a place called Joyland, which, by the way, was named after the, uh, the amusement park that occupied that area before they built the subdivision. That it was called Joyland. It was the only African American uh, amusement park in the Southeast. So naturally, when it went out of business, they took the land. They built the little subdivision called Joyland. I was sent to live with my father's first cousin, uh, uh, Jim Freeman. Uh, because I was, as the old people would say, I was smelling myself. That means, <laughs> which means that uh, uh, when you reach a certain age, you get underarm uh, uh, odor, and you you feel like you're you're a man now, and this sort of thing. Uh, and I have to tell you that I learned quite a bit from him in terms of uh, some of the values, in terms of family values, uh, you know, and the importance of family. And I became much more involved in the church because that was his dictate. Every, he had two sons uh, who were pretty rough. Uh, and the two sons would uh, do all sorts of things, uh, but I wouldn't do them because I saw the punishment that rained down upon them. And I, being a, uh, you know, a, a stranger of sort in this land, I did not want and that was instrumental for me in terms of uh, I began to do my homework. <laughs> I didn't cause any problems in school because I did not want to be part of that uh, uh, discipline. Living with his cousin meant that James Montgomery wasn't at home to see his little brother, Gregory, grow up. By the time he finished his undergraduate work at Morehouse College, he'd been hired by IBM. Then he spent years moving from one place to another, bouncing between cities as the field of computer science continued to develop. When James Montgomery returned with his wife and children to Atlanta, he was living in the suburb of Marietta, perhaps 30 minutes from his mother's home in Kirkwood. And his younger siblings had grown up in Kirkwood. 
Gregory especially saw that neighborhood as home. In late August of 2019, we took a ride with James and James's daughter, Carla. Our first stop was the Montgomery's former home on Douglas Street. My brother's friend. Which house is it, Daddy? My husband. 130. One, right here, the gray house. Of course, there was a tree. Remember the tree that was on the, on the side there, mm-hmm. Carla? That was a tree everybody took a picture of, of themselves in front of. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have pictures in front of that tree. <laughs> yeah, look. Take yeah. a left. That's a Go to, down porch. to the second. Pass through here and then take a left. You see how it wraps around the corner? Yes. This is a beautiful area. Did y'all spend a lot of time around here? I did, yeah, I did. Uh, uh, I knew some characters in this neighborhood. Uh, but they, you know, they didn't they didn't bother me. It was some of them called me professor because of the way I spoke, mm-hmm. my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. But that that was all right. As long as they weren't robbing and beating me up. <laughs> I still joke about that, but it, there, there were some characters. Now, where would you like to go next? Um, Laura? Drive down to Thomasville Heights, I guess. Okay. Yeah, I mean, what, what used to be. Thomasville Heights is further southeast of Kirkwood, where Gregory had been staying with his mother. Maybe three miles. The high six-figure new builds thin out long before you make it to that neighborhood. A small area in southeast Atlanta and near the ring of 285, Thomasville Heights falls into the 30315 zip code, but just barely. It sits right on the DeKalb and Fulton County line. Most homes in the area were built in the 1950s and the apartments in the 1970s. Graves at a nearby forgotten cemetery, also called Thomasville, are over a century old. Current residents deal with the same frustrating public transportation system everyone on the edges of the city does. Multiple bus changes to get to the grocery store or to the train or to work. Thomasville Heights is now home to a law clinic, to a nonprofit bicycle shop, to a small grocery co-op, to a corner coffee place. We're in Kirkwood. Oh, wait, I do know where we are. <laughs> That's the place my husband goes to get meat. <laughs> Spotted trotter. Mm-hmm. It's the meat place. But housing remains difficult to find and to maintain. Residents in the Forest Cove apartments have been protesting major maintenance issues for years, like mold, disrepair, a lack of security, and a permanent fix has not been instituted. In 2017, GSU law professor Courtney Law Anderson wrote, quote, Georgia is meeting only 28% of the affordable housing needs of extremely low-income tenants, households with an income that is 30% or less than the area's median income. Thomasville Heights was a major point of her analysis. Using data from recent housing and income studies, Anderson points out a clear connection. There are more people in need of affordable housing than there is housing for them. This impacts every aspect of life. The quality of schools, whether landlords are predatory, if an apartment complex feels motivated to address maintenance issues. It's difficult to find much history of the Thomasville Heights neighborhood, even in university archives. A local blog called History Atlanta mentions that the Thomasville Cemetery, 
located on land across Moreland Avenue, was named, quote, after Reverend Henry Thomas, one of the founders of the Mount Carmel AME Church on McDonough Boulevard. It's likely the neighborhood was named after Reverend Thomas, too. A car can make it from Thomasville Heights to downtown in under five minutes. But the state route and grassy expanses, the empty lots, the enormous Mount Nebo Church dwarfing the elementary school, this is a spread-out staccato Atlanta that tourists don't see. A 1967 document from UGA's Allen Archives, and it's a redevelopment report of some kind, describes the Thomasville area as, quote, designated by the Board of Aldermen in 1957 as a slum. This, quote, urban renewal report goes on to describe a lack of facilities such as parks or sidewalks, the abandoned buildings, the empty lots. It outlines plans for, quote, 360 public housing units, six churches, and a 10-acre commercial tract. This was one of the many parts of town defined as an urban renewal area, and thus the focus of city, state, and even federal funds. The first mention of the Thomasville Heights apartment complex comes in the Atlanta Daily World in 1971, when it's reported that federal surplus land has been granted to the city for, quote, much-needed housing expansion. That's when the ground is broken and the complex is named for the neighborhood. And that complex would raise its public profile in just a few years, the 1970s, during the Atlanta child murders. According to the Atlanta Youth Murders and the Politics of Race, victim Patrick Rogers, who was often called Patman, lived in Thomasville Heights. Author Bernard Headley says that Patrick disappeared on November 10, 1978. His body was recovered a month later. Police were eventually told that a man calling himself a music talent scout had been in the Thomasville area. Headley writes that Patrick, an aspiring songwriter, told a friend's mother that the man was going to record him. Atlanta had taken on large-scale public housing before. In fact, as we told you in Season 3, Atlanta's Techwood Homes was the first public housing development in the nation, built in 1935 and limited almost exclusively to white residents. Techwood Homes, like Thomasville Heights, has since been demolished. The land where Techwood Homes stood is high-demand real estate. But the Thomasville Heights apartments, built on surplus government land, they haven't been reimagined. Instead, right where the DeKalb County line begins, there's a wide, empty field. The grass has grown tall, but hasn't totally overtaken things. It's been mowed, but just not enough. If you can imagine the apartments as they once were, flanked on one side by a massive cement wall and then surrounded by a fence on the others, the wall looks like something built to divide one country from another. East and West Berlin, not a neighborhood property line. Take coloring your hair at home to the next level with Madison Reed. You deserve gorgeous, professional hair color delivered to your door for less than $25. For decades, women have had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or the time and expense of a salon. Many Madison Reed clients comment how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love the results. Gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. Madison Reed delivers gray covering, game-changing color you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon. 
What makes Madison Reed Color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous multi-tonal shades. Recently, I tried Madison Reed's Color Reviving Gloss. It's a sheer, semi-permanent tint that gives you visible color and shine boost for the next six to eight shampoos. It was the perfect way to bring new life to my brown-black color. I chose Espresso Gloss, which is designed to neutralize brassiness and add depth. It looks amazing. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. The Fall Line listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code FALLLINE. That's F-A-L-L-L-I-N-E. That's code FALLLINE at madison-reed.com. With James and Carla Montgomery, we drove from Kirkwood to the site where Thomasville Heights Apartments once stood. As we went along Moreland Avenue, we passed new build after new build. We, we drove to the Publix uh, store down here, that this, the new one down here on, on, uh, okay, on so Memorial. You're going to turn the left. Now, now I know. I'm sorry. I'm like before. She... Lynette had, happened to look up to see the price of the condos that they're building, starting at 800 k Do you remember hearing about Thomasville Heights when y'all were young, or what was the reputation? I didn't know about it as much because it, it was constructed after I left. that it was a notorious place. I think after after my brother was murdered, uh, they constructed uh, a gate, a wall and a gate into the neighborhood. And uh, I have a cousin who, who uh, made the observation. He said, well, and he, I said to him, well, that's to keep people out. He said, sometimes they build structures to keep people in. <laughs> but it, it had a, a, a rough reputation. As a matter of fact, uh, I was very familiar with the with the, the ground, the area itself, the lot where it was built because uh, when I grew up in the household of my, my father's first cousin and his family, uh, it was very close to, to, to that area. Take a right. Right, yes. Okay. This, is this is the wall. Wow. Now all of this was Thomasville Heights on the on the right. It was bad. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Now you can see the, the fencing that they had around here, should I say the gate. Yeah. And here this traffic light on is on the on the right is where they entered. And you can see they just completely demolished the place. Oh yeah. And this is where they had the, the gates. By now, you have the gist of what happened to Gregory in Thomasville Heights. You have the bare facts. The newspaper reported some of it, the hows but not the whys. In Atlanta in the 1980s, drug crime didn't get more than a few inches of column space. There are two other AJC articles that year that specifically mentioned Thomasville Heights and drug crime. 
One is a brief discussion of a man indicted for recruiting preteens to sell drugs. Another discusses a Department of Health initiative to hand out condoms in areas with high rates of IV drug use and sex work. The more extensive social discussions tend to be larger and more expansive. The war on drugs versus specific people, places, and losses. In 1987, Atlanta's population was down from the 1970s, but crime was on its way up. There would be a spike in 1988 that would carry into the early 90s. The Disaster Center records a major increase of over 35,000 incidents in 1987 to nearly 43,000 in 1988. 1988 was also the year that local and national media began to take notice of the changing drug culture of Atlanta. We've discussed the Miami Boys on our show before, and in 1988, they had set down roots in Georgia. A 1988 Associated Press article details this development, quoting a Lieutenant Woodward of the Atlanta Bureau of Police as saying that he noticed, quote, about two years ago, the young men ranging in age from 15 to 25 coming to Atlanta to sell cocaine and crack. Associated Press also writes, quote, instead of just a few small bags of the drug, the men had 200 to 300 bags, and that, quote, Miami boys have changed Georgia's drug business with their violent tactics. Uzis and Soviet assault rifles frequently are weapons of protection and aggression. But the Miami boys weren't the only aggressive force on the streets in 1987. It was also the year that the Red Dog Unit, Atlanta's hands-on drug task force, was formed. It would remain controversial until its disbandment in 2009. That year, the AJC wrote, quote, in 1987, the year the Red Dog Squad was formed, the city of Atlanta had 207 homicides. That unit, armed and operating like military, they were seen as a solution. In a tough-on-drugs decade, the task force was viewed as effective. As Victoria Lowe Hicks reported in 2011, quote, In Fulton County, indictments for drug offenses more than tripled between 1985 and 1989. But there was plenty of community critique, too, especially focused on their use of force. In some Atlanta neighborhoods, fear of law enforcement could rival or exceed fear of drug crime. Gregory Montgomery had his own run-ins with the law, including forgery charges and other charges related to theft. But outside of criminal activity, his older brother James remembers that Gregory was also randomly stopped by police sometimes just for being out in his neighborhood. I think that uh, Greg uh, looked up to me, not just because I was the eldest, but because I was one of his uh, defenders. I've been two, maybe three situations where I saw the poli a police officer was mistreating Greg or whatever, and I'd get involved. I'd just get involved. It's just... It's, automatically come out of me being involved because uh, trying to pin him with something or, or that sort of thing. Uh, and that's not to say I defended my brother when he did wrong. I just defended him when he was being mistreated by law enforcement and that sort of thing. So I had two or three, probably around three, three, three or four occasions where I had to step in and do that. And they would, they would listen to me because I I sounded like someone who had a, you know, who was 
even in terms of my assessment. And I remember those times. And, and uh, he would look at me like, uh, Greg, that is. He would look at me like, also, now you sticking up on your brother, you know, that sort of thing. And I say, no, I stick up for what's right. That's what I would tell him. And you should too. But that's probably part of my DNA, considering my, my ancestry on both my mother and father's side. When researching a case, you're always faced with one main problem. How do you summarize a person without losing the essentials? And the answer is that you don't. But we, we ask for it anyway, because specifics are what make us care. The details that separate one life from another. Who was Gregory Montgomery? He was the youngest child in a family of five raised in Atlanta. His mother and father divorced. His oldest siblings were more like parents than playmates. He grew up handsome. He was popular and fearless, not one to back down from a challenge. We asked Gregory's brother James and his sister Dolores to describe their relationships with Greg and to tell us more about him. He never did fuss and fight with me like he did the other smaller siblings. <laughs> But, you know, you know, kids can be kids. You respect me more so because I was like the, the eldest one in the house because James, my brother, had left and gone off to a different state and working and stuff. So he was, he was a little boy. He was kind of a little rambunctious. He was just all over the place, I say that. He did his own thing. Nobody can tell him what to do. My relationship with Gregory was that, and we called him Greg, uh, Greg was that uh, he respected me because really I was the adult in the house most of the time, you know, in terms of being the eldest. Uh, uh, it was when I left that I think he, he how can I say, uh, uh, became very independent. Uh, he was very uh, popular among the ladies. Uh, and... Uh, he was outspoken. I, I mean, he became very outspoken when I was not, not there. He was very, very popular among the girls. Too popular. <laughs> yeah, he, he was a handsome guy. Yeah. In other words. yeah. So would you, it sounds like... At time, like a young, like a young man can be. Was he kind of full of himself sometimes? Yes, yeah. very full of himself. <laughs> Too full of himself. So he was so real he, confident. Oh yeah. yeah. He thought he knew everything. Knew everything. Mm -hmm. He could do anything. And he was very bold. Very bold. Like he in trouble. My mother was was uh, old school for that time. Uh, she had this philosophy that says, and, and she was uh, she was this way with us too. Uh, uh, you live your life; you're going to find your way. I'll give you some guidance, but it's up to you to live your life and, and, and find the way. Um, and the only thing that she would say to me, and it's, it's kind of funny, but it's not funny. She says, "Well, I always keep his insurance paid up, his life insurance paid yep. up." And then one thing she would always say. She was all. She was all. She always say, uh, "When they're young, they're on your mind, and when they're old, they're on your heart." 
And she would say that all the time. And I wonder why. But so, give it time and you find out. You'll find out. Bold and daring. Maybe it's no surprise that Gregory sometimes got into trouble or was willing to go along with others who sought it out. That Friday after Thanksgiving, in 1987, Gregory was staying at his mother's house in Kirkwood. She was in the hospital, and he was hanging out with a family friend, a man that we'll call Marcus, who lived in the neighborhood. Marcus was the last person to see Gregory alive. His friend is the one who asked him to go there, right? Was there asked to yes. go over there? Mm-hmm. Were they, and they were purchasing for the friend's personal use or to sell? No, personal use. Personal use, okay. And the friend did not have enough money. Uh-huh. And Greg, being as bold as he was, said, Oh, we can go anyway. I can, I can get it. And that's the crux of, of a, the problem in terms of why he was shot. I don't mean, I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying uh, that that was the reason uh, I think he was shot because, uh, you know, I guess the guy wanted a given price for the drugs and uh, he knew that he didn't have enough money. So he said, take what I'm going to give you and proceeded to just drive on. When I say take what I'm going to give you, that's one version. The other version said that he didn't say anything. He just threw the money at the guy and, and took off. The basics of what happened that night, the events were in the paper. But the Montgomery family has heard other things both then and through the years. Do they have the truth? They don't know. 30 years on, they can't always remember what they read, what they experienced, what the police told them, what a neighbor said. They know this. Their lives changed one by one as the early morning phone calls came in. That night, they had been worrying over their mother who was in the hospital. So when the phones began to ring, they expected news about her. I don't remember what's yeah. It's Thursday morning. Mm-hmm. I that, that's what and they thing. call me and say that Greg's been shot. And I say, shot? And I said, they say, well, we need to go to Mama's house. Mama's house. And I said, no. I said, why are we not going to the hospital? And so, over to my mother's house. And so, when I get there, he was in the car. Deceased. And... And I just lost it. That was it. That's all I know. Yes. For me, I got the early morning call. And uh, what I was told was that uh, uh, that uh, he'd been shot and he's not moving. And, of course, I knew what that meant. Uh, and my body itself uh, sort of uh, reacted in the sense that while I was driving there, the closer I got, I noticed the spore I was going, I was driving, uh, sort of dreading what, what I'd find. Yeah. Uh, and I uh, approached, because the next door neighbor was the guy who had gone with him. Uh, and yeah, it was his car, right? Yes. And he was in the, in the back seat, uh, nothing special, like he was just sleeping. Yeah. It was, you know, it, it was, it was not a lot of blood. It was not a, that kind of, environment. I subsequently found out that, in fact, uh, Gregory was driving and, in fact, uh, uh, he was shot as they were leaving 
where they were, and it wasn't any big, big drug deal or anything like that, trying to buy some drugs, just a small, trying to petty thing of buying drugs. And I'm, from what I was told, the Greg basically told the guy, this is how much money I'm going to give you. You know, and the guy didn't agree with me. They started driving off. And the guy, guy or guys, just started shooting. And he was shot. And uh, he drove for a while. And uh, the friend, the neighbor who was with him, uh, that was in the car with him, basically uh, uh, noticed when he snuffed over, he was so afraid that what he did, he got out of the car took him out of the uh, driver's seat and put him in the back seat so he could just keep going because I think he feared that they might be coming for them. When a person is murdered by a stranger, it can be difficult to solve the crime, to find out much of anything. The car, the crime scene, moved from Fulton County to DeKalb County, all in the space of a few miles. Evidence was disturbed. Stories were confused. And yet, it didn't take long for a suspect to emerge. In fact, his name was printed in the paper. He was described as, quote, wanted for the murder. But 32 years later, Gregory's case is still open. It's one of the reasons that Carla, his niece, began to research the case herself. She saw the effect on her cousins, Gregory's children, especially her cousin, Yanika. When... My uncle was, my uncle Greg was killed. I was seven years old. And I have a lot of very, I guess, um, vivid memories of that time of being told what happened, of being very sad, not just for, um, like, just for myself, but being sad for my, for my dad and for my aunts and being really sad for my grandmother but especially being sad for um, one of my cousins that I was particularly close to, um, my cousin Yanika, who at the time we thought she was his oldest child. I know at one point my dad had given me the name. And so I looked through court records um, in the metro area to see is he still around? Is he somebody that's still alive? Did he go to prison for this? I looked at Georgia Department of Corrections records and saw that he had done some time, but definitely not for this. <laughs> he was in jail such a short amount of time and the charges weren't anything to do with the death. Um, so then just wondering what happened from there. Well, how did things just fall through the cracks? Next time on The Fall Line. Part two of the Montgomery family story, where we, with the family, try to discover why Gregory's case has remained open. No prosecution, no resolution. We would like to thank all the listeners who have taken the time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon. We absolutely could not do it without you. Special thanks to our listener, Angie Dodd. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Our research assistants are Haley Gray, Kim Fritz, Brooke Floyd, and Lexi Newhouse. Content advisors are Brandy Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Music is by RJR. Find our merch in the Exactly Right Podswag store. 
part of our proceeds are donated to support the work of the DNA Doe Project.